Natasha Dion, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. Your new novel is The Perishing. It is your second after Grace, which a lot of us remember from, was it five years ago at this point? How long has it been since you published Grace? Yeah, five years, 2016. Okay. So The Perishing brings us to Los Angeles in the 1930s and also jumps ahead in time, but we're going to hold off on that. We're going to focus on LA in the 1930s because that landscape, that 80-year-old landscape, feels very much like 2021 Los Angeles and 2020 Los Angeles. So can we set up The Perishing? for listeners? Yes. Yes. The perishing happens in 1930s Los Angeles between the two world wars. Um, With Grace, I had already covered, you know, a lot of the civil war and as much as I wanted to go into that kind of violence. Um, And I wanted to be in between during the golden age of Hollywood, where we don't think about the brown people who also lived here during that time. And so much happened in that time for all people in the birth of LA in sort of a rebirth of LA. Cause that was when there was a lot of migration route 66 went from Chicago to Los Angeles. So all of that, it was so ripe with hope, you know, so many hopeful people trying to start again in the warm weather and live the American dream. Lou, who is your main protagonist in the perishing, she's not like other people. Nope. <laughs> No, she, let's see, we were, we talked a little bit about not giving away any spoilers. Mm-hmm. I wanted Lou to be who I think most of us want to be when we walk into a new space. Mm-hmm. We have sort of no history, so we could just learn and get along and let life happen. And then we could just de- determine from that point who we like, who we don't like. She wakes in an alley and she doesn't remember who she is. So she has no history. So I wanted her to start fresh in a way without genetic memory, without any personal history and just experience the world because I knew she would be able to see it differently as in a way like a child, but also mature enough to be able to respond and interact with the world around her. I think it's fair to mention, though, that your publisher is using Octavia Butler and N.K. Jemison as comp authors. So this is a different experience from Grace. Yes. This is a little more speculative, but it's very much grounded in Los Angeles' history. And you're talking about things like the St. Francis Dam collapse. You're talking about the massacre of Chinese laborers in 1871, also Route 66. There's a lot of Los Angeles here. It's not getting too far afield from Lou to talk about the kind of research you needed to do. Now, you grew up in Los Angeles and you grew up also around Los Angeles. You've been there your entire life. You still had a little research to do, though. Yeah, I had a lot of research to do because the things that I had grown to learn, you know, in school, the history that we learn is not focused on St. Francis Dam break, for instance, which had to do with Mulholland. People know more about Mulholland Drive than they do about the dam break that actually ended his career and probably his life because he developed a condition, maybe from the regret of what happened there when thousands of people were killed. There was a saying before the dam broke, like he had no formal engineering background or training, but he had a lot of money. He was able to sort of make things work before, and they let him build this dam um, that would hold up thousands of gallons of water and people who lived below the dam would say, see you tomorrow if the dam don't break, you know, and it was a joke, um, kind of. And then it happened. 
and all those people were killed. And as rich as he was and he lived in the hills, he would come and visit the dam, you know, regularly because he was concerned when it started to crack and leak and things like that. And the road started to subside and it killed all those people. But I wanted to retell that story and what happened you know, afterwards, he was found not guilty of any wrongdoing. They didn't pay people of color. They paid for the life of white people who lost their lives, but not of brown people. And I remember being in high school in the late 90s, and a body was discovered from that dam break in 1930s. And then they taught about it in our school. So it's like local history, but it's really not national history. It was the largest civil engineering disaster in the nation. And it's just scrubbed from the story of us. So that was interesting to me because I live at the mouth of the dam. Um, and I didn't know that even growing up here. So I always say maybe it was haunted and the story wanted me to tell it. I don't know. So things like that, Valverde, I wanted to talk about that. It was like the Black Palm Springs and it's right here in the Santa Clarita Valley. I wanted to talk about South Central LA. So when W.E.B. Dubois first came to that area, he said, this is the most beautifully housed group of Black people in the United States, you know, and it was at that time. 70% of Black people own their homes. You know, every they had a whole neighborhood. And then most people know South Central LA as sort of the crime capital, the gang movies that we saw, Black gangsters. And in the 90s, we lost a whole generation of Black boys to gang violence, much like what's happening in Chicago right now. But they don't remember that old South Central LA, which they now changed the name to sort of cover up that history to South LA. So I just want to remind people of where we've been and remind Black people and also the nation that something went wrong here. How can you go from this to that? It's not because we're lazy. It's not because we're not hardworking like any other people. So what went wrong here? So I wanted to explore the ways that we oppress people systematically, not just Black people, but Brown people, Asian people, women, trans community, what it looks like and how it has long-term effects to our nation. Lou shows up against this backdrop where hope is pitted against a pretty brutal reality that folks are kept in certain circles and and there is not a lot of movement and not a lot of exchange. But she shows up and she is put in a foster home with Ms. Miriam and Mr. Lawrence and their son. And she starts to find a grounding though because this is an intact family and Mr. Lawrence is a teacher. He's had deep roots in the community. His students come back and say, thank you so much. And they've gone on to really great things. And Mrs. Miriam is a stay-at-home mom and she's taking care of their kids. And this is Lou's first experience of family. And she's put into school and she's making friends. Her best friend is Chinese-American, Esther, who's a pip. (laughs) She's fun. Yes, she is. (laughs) She's fun. But here's Lou making her way in the world and bumping in to things like racism and exclusion and other people's opinions. So what's it like for you when you're working through a character like Lou, who is completely tabula rasa? How do you balance that? How do you let Lou speak for herself? I think that even in our not knowing, I think sincerity is maybe the most mature position we can, any of us can take. Knowing that you don't know and that you're not the expert wherever you go. And I think that that 
is a beautiful posture to take whenever we encounter a new place, but also who we are also gets in the way. So it's also stumbling over that, you know, who we are or who we should be. So let me give you an example of what I mean. So I was born in Los Angeles, Cedar sinai Hospital. Grew up there till I was 10. Um, we moved to Santa Clarita because of, you know, the new party drug called crack cocaine came into the community. And people didn't realize the the instantaneous addictive qualities similar to our opioid pandemic now. But obviously, opioid pandemic versus crack is treated totally different. But it was a party drug. You know, nobody expected what it would do. And teachers and doctors in our community, police officers, people we trusted were addicted, instantly addicted to this drug. And it changed our community. And it wasn't safe. Um, So we moved to Santa Clarita. But because I was part of a strong Black church community, we always were in Los Angeles because you don't actually leave your church communities. You just sort of kind of move a little bit further, but you're always there. So you're always there. But I remember coming to Santa Clarita, which was a suburb of LA, still LA County, but it was the first time that I was followed around grocery stores. It was the first time that I knew other people expected me to be a certain way because of the color of my skin. Like, Let's see you dance, Natasha. Let's see you run. You must be good. You must be a fast runner. Like things I hadn't thought about. Like I wasn't the athlete in LA. Like people knew there were those girls that could play, you know, but it was like they had watched movies or TV. They expected me to talk a certain way. And I realized then that who I was or the way that I appeared, people expected things of my character. And I wanted Lou to come in as I did in Santa Clarita, not knowing that people expected me to be a certain way. Like my best friends, and you know, up to the time I was 10 was a girl named Esther, who I named this character after Esther, you know, who was Korean and Chinese and my black friend. But we all went to private school together. I think it was Catholic school. I wasn't Catholic, but we went to a Catholic. So it was like so many things going on, you know, but I never had to think about what I appeared to be to other people because it was a non-issue. In Santa Clarita, where everyone was white, I was the stranger and they had certain ideas that they would put on me. You know, you must be like this. So then I started thinking, maybe I have to be like that. So I have to learn how to dance now. I better watch some videos. I need to learn how to play basketball. And I need to learn, what's that word again? Honey child? Okay, honey child. You know, like I'm like learning new language and it it wasn't who I was, but I knew things were expected of me. I had to walk a certain way when I went into a store. If I were going to the corner store, I had to, you know, look around like I was busy, show my money in my hand, things like that. So it was a different experience. And I wanted to give Lou that. What if she arrived and didn't even know that Black meant something? you know, in 1930s segregated LA, that it meant something. So that's where she starts. She's the ultimate outsider. Mm. But she finds this family. And not only does she find a family in a community in a school, she's got a teacher who's willing to help, who puts her on the school paper, which leads her to her job as the first Black reporter for the Los Angeles Times. And she is on the death desk, which is another way of saying obituaries, but that's sort of the way that she gets to write about the community, because that's really the only way communities of color are covered in the media in the 1930s. And in some cases, that still continues today. You grew up at the Times. How much fun was that for you to let Lou loose in Los Angeles, where she just gets to ask a lot of people a lot of questions? (laughs) Yeah, you know, I I think one of the characters talks about how 
death is basically the best way to see how a person really was. If you want, you can walk into a funeral and read, you know, what's been said about them, their eulogy, and you find out so much about that person that you probably would not find out any other way. Even if you sat across from them at a desk for 20 years, you now know who their relatives are. So what a way to discover people than with the moment of their death. And also I've read, I can't remember if it were a I don't know, Dalai Lama or somebody said something about you could tell the power of a society by the way people die. Their poorest people die. Like, how are they dying? You want to know the health of that society? It's how people go out in the end. Is it from hunger? Is it from COVID? Is it from homelessness? Is it because they freeze to death? Like you can really tell the heart of a nation or a society by the way people die. And I wanted to explore that in different ways, but also be able to tell the story of L.A. as a society through the eyes of Lou, who also doesn't know these people. But she does know what questions to ask. Mm, So did you just set time aside as you were writing this novel to let yourself through Lou ask questions that you've always wanted to ask? Or is this just Lou speaking for herself? I think it's both. It's like, I could be one of those writers who say, oh no, it has nothing to do with me. This story, it just came from, I don't know, from somewhere out. I'm genuinely curious about people. And I was for 11 years, part of a a very large church, a 4,000 person church until just before the pandemic. And It used to often be that when people would pass away, sometimes you would have 10 people in the audience. So I would always, that was my little thing, you know, was to go to funerals of people, whether I knew them or not. And sometimes I would cry because they moved me, you know, or, you know, just to be a person in the audience to support this life, to hear about this person. If a child passed away, you would always have a lot of people. Sometimes if you had an old person who had a lot of family, especially Latino families, sometimes Jewish families, Italian families. But if you had someone in between, you may or may not have a lot of people there, especially if they didn't go to work all the time or to an office. So I was always trying to be a butt in the seat just to hear about this life and just, you know, everybody should have somebody there. So in that way, there were questions that they would answer that I never asked. And that's how I learned what questions I would want to know about someone else. Like, what did they enjoy? What did they enjoy when no one was watching? What made them laugh? You know, did they tell jokes? Did they cook really bad? Did they burn their food? The little details always made me smile. You wanted to know what made them human. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just a body. We're not nothing. All of us are here influencing each other. People we like, people we don't like, people we don't even know we've influenced. We have, you know, that we may never hear of. And I just want to know, you know, where did they walk? You know, what did they do? The perishing is stylistically different from Grace in a couple of very major ways. But you do come back in both books to love and fear and fate and justice. Justice is a big point for you. And Lou goes through quite a lot in The Perishing. She can hold her own. Let's put it that way. She can hold her own. She learns some very useful skills in this book. But does Lou get justice? Does justice exist? You know, it's hard not to talk about it without talking about my background, because I think justice really depends on who's seeking it. You know, is it the victim seeking it? Is it the person who did it, who wants mercy, which is a form of justice? 
I think it exists, but I, I think it's a moving target. I think it's it's a living word, so to speak. It is something that we have to be willing to move with, and it looks different throughout time. So is, for instance, our reparations justice, or is it affirmative action, or is it paying families to, like, whatever this thing is, but it's the same in any civil case. So for instance, there's equity, meaning you put a person back sort of where they were. There's also another part, which is you sort of pay the damage that they probably have, but it won't meet them. But if somebody dies, there's no justice when somebody dies because you can never get that person back. Is killing somebody then justice? If you kill somebody who killed, you know, so what is justice? It, it means something different to different people. So I don't think there's a, a set definition. I think that the real goal of a just life, if I think about what a just life is, is living in the present, living in the fullness of the present in our relationship with others and as genuinely as we can as ourselves. So I think we can live a form of justice in our everyday lives that way. Justice also doesn't necessarily mean that you're taking something from someone else. And I think that gets lost for some people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes it is, you know, well, let me put it this way. There is an immaturity that exists when we think we can do things without consequence. Like we can live our lives with no consequence. But there has to be a moment where we say, you know what, I am accountable I am responsible. And for that, it costs something. But accountability and responsibility isn't a cost. So I think that's what you're saying. So when people say, oh, it's going to cost me something. No, it's just you saying I'm responsible. I'm accountable. I'm a beneficiary. Then that person who's accountable and responsible knows that they have to pay for that thing. That's a consequence, but that's part of taking responsibility. And I think, especially in America, we don't want to do that, especially if we're talking about slavery, if we want to just give an example. They're like, well, I didn't benefit. I didn't. Those people are gone, but it's just not true. You know, three million people at the end of American slavery and American slavery was human trafficking and sex trafficking, which people are so against today, they say. But like hundreds of thousands of people died trying to keep human trafficking and sex trafficking. That's the reality. And they had a certain skin color. That's just the reality. When slavery ended, three million Black people, that was the color of their skin. That's just the facts, were set, quote unquote, free. And there was a consequence to that. And sometimes we want to look at history and scrub it of the colors, scrub it of the trafficking that built this country, you know, because those things are uncomfortable. However, we want to take responsibility for the good things without talking about the real cost, without being accountable and responsible for that kind of devastation and what it did and how it still plays in our society. For instance, Jeffrey Epstein accused, we want to make statutes of Jeff who did the same thing that we think is so gross right now. Three million people were released. You know, that's how tragic it was. It's hard for us to see it that way. Why are you taking down our statues? Because that guy is gross. He cost the lives of hundreds of thousands of people fighting to keep human trafficking, sex, slavery. Like, why would you do that? And we don't have that perspective because we can't take responsibility and see the consequence of that kind of crime on American soil. And that thread runs through Lou's life. There's another character called Sarah 
who readers will meet, who has a connection to Lou, but we're going to let readers discover that connection. And Sarah does have a perspective that Lou doesn't. She's got a little more age on her, a little more wisdom. The world's a little different. But she does have that perspective that you're talking about. She has the longer view. I'm assuming that Lou showed up first, but how did you figure out that you needed both of these voices to tell this story? Because Lou's story alone in the 30s is quite compelling. It's just the punctuation that Sarah adds is pretty terrific. Thank you so much. You know, the genesis of the story was a dream. You know, I'm, I don't remember my dreams a lot, but when I remember them, I sit up and pay attention. And with this particular dream, it terrified me. Similar to Grace, but this one, I was in love and it still scared me because of the way that it ended. It became, I think it's chapter 35 of this book. And in this dream, and I'll just tell this because it's written a certain way in the book, but in this dream, I was a character in the dream. I was a white passing Black woman, and I was in love with this Chinese man, and I knew that it was Los Angeles. I knew because of the architecture, the adobe buildings. I knew the year that it was. It was the 1800s. And this terrible thing happened. And I was so terrified by this dream. When I woke up, I started Googling it. I was I was crying because I felt like it was a nightmare. But it was strange because, like I said, I was in love and I'm Googling it. And then I found an event because I wanted to see, is it possible for these people to have existed? Is it possible for something like this to have happened? And it wasn't that I felt like I was getting, a, I don't know, some sort of psychic link. It wasn't like that. It was just, wow, is this possible? And then I found the 1871 mass. And I knew it was going to be part of the book. So as a craft element, I had to figure out how could I connect events through time like this? And what would I need to do? And that's how Sarah was born and how Lou was born. Because I knew I wanted her to be in, in the 1930s. So, you know, so now we're talking, you know, 50 years after the end of slavery. So I wanted to see how we were doing, check in, and then sort of how it's always been and how to tie as a craft element how to tie everything together to tell the story of love too, because I wanted it to be about love. That human experience of love and how it bonds us together is strong as stories do. Stories bind us. And even our knowledge of ourselves is about stories, right? The way stories come together and the way we tell stories of our own lives and of others, but also of love, who, we, who we've loved, who we love now and why. It's such a fine line, too, between love and hate and love and grief. Mm -hmm. These polar opposites mm -hmm. that actually don't exist without the other. Yeah. Yeah. Where did the title come from? The Perishing? <laughs> so the Perishing, because when we're talking about, so 1871, you know, there's a scene here. Someone dies. And it's the way we all have this appointment with death, no matter how many times and how many ways we try to avoid it. We're all dying, but I don't want to think of it that way because I think we're all living to the moment we can't anymore. But there's something so perishable about us, about our lives. We're just this blink in the, in the eye of time. But in that in-between, you know, on our headstones, I read somewhere somebody says, there's the date you were born and the date you died. We have to live the dash. So we do have an opportunity to live, but we're all perishing eventually. And for Lou, who may, I'm going to just say this part, she may be immortal. She's looking around and saying that other people are dying 
and they have to die. Either she or Sarah makes the statement, you know, not all of us are going to survive everybody who loves us. So for us, we're each perishing even to each other, but we have an opportunity. And I think as a writer, I could ask for anything besides our nation being better and us being better to each other, is that we live better, that we recognize that we have such a limited time, but we have an opportunity to make a difference. Whether you believe in an afterlife, whether you have a religious background, whether you believe in God, whatever that is, we know that we have an a definite time here. And I just hope that we can do better by seeing the world differently. Who are some of the writers who've helped you change the way you see the world? Oh, that's so good. Okay, well, first of all, the Bible. Because <laughs> Old Testament, New Testament, you know, I love the bloody, not love, but I get it. You know, I understand that. I've also read a lot of old Egyptian, this like ancient Egyptian stories, like diaries. For people who lived like 100 BC and things like that in Egypt and how they're complaining, for instance, about the new person in charge and how they want to kill us and they're just trying to work us to death. And I'm just like, really? Were they complaining about wage and hour back then? Like, were they really complaining about politicians back then? But obviously they were, you know, whether we're talking about the assassination of a Caesar or whatever. We're repeating these cycles from ancient times to now. And I think we have to think, or I hope that, well, no, I'm not even going to say what I hope for other people. But for me, I'm thinking, who do I want to be in this story, in this cast of characters? If somebody's telling the story about me in 100 BC, who do I want to be? Do I want to be the person that's killing people for some extremist belief? Or do I want to be the helper? Did anything surprise you while you were writing The Perishing? Yeah, (laughs) a lot. You know, I was often surprised by the things my characters would say, you know, things I haven't, I say they say because I hadn't actually thought about it or considered it. I write something and it would make me laugh. I would write something. There's a line (laughs) that got, well, I won't even say, but there's, there's lines that make me laugh out loud. There's also lines that make me cry. There's a line that Sarah says when she's talking about love. And she says, emotions are an incomplete guide. And I never thought about that line. And I was like, is that true? Because she says, even love. And I was like, but I'm married for love. Like, how can you say that? I didn't know. There's so much I didn't know. And you're talking to, you know, especially me. I was married. I met my husband at the airport accidentally. We were engaged in three months, married in six. And that was 20 years ago. And I'm married for love. Like that was all I needed to know. So I'm like, really? Is it an incomplete guide? And then, but it is. There's so much more to know. There's so much to learn. And so it it constantly surprised me and how I felt about grief and dying and understanding that I am grieving. I'm deeply grieving for our country. I'm deeply grieving. Even for my family, I worry, you know, about so many things, about things I haven't appreciated. Like when I was 20 years old, I look back and I'm like, wow, I wish I really would have appreciated that time. Or 16, I wish I would have spent more time with that grandmother before she died or that. So like regrets about things that I cannot change at this time. I didn't realize that I was grieving time. Is that what writing The Perishing taught you? that you didn't realize you were grieving time or is it something else? That's it. Exactly. You nailed it, Mila. 
grieving time, grieving our nation, because I want to say, look, we're running out of time, all of us, even if it's not our nation, even if it continues, because I, I believe it will continue differently than we know it today. But we're grieving our opportunity to see the good. A friend of mine wrote, it's like, sometimes it's like finding sweet things in piles of shit. <laughs> but seriously, like there's so many sweet things. I was looking at, you know, iPhones, they show you your memories of like five years ago. And I was looking at my young son, you know, he there he is seven years old trying to talk because he has a language um, delay, speech and language. And I just And he's trying to say the word hero. And he keeps saying, he will, he will, you know, and it was so cute. And he's so little, his face is so little. And at the time we were so just focused on getting him to speak, taking him to doctor's appointments, taking him to, you know, therapy that I feel like I've, I've missed that. Like I miss just sitting in that, those moments. If I didn't have the video, I would have forgotten it. And that, and that just grieves me. We don't have to live like this. We can live in the present. And I know I've mentioned this before in the show, but this is a really different book from Grace. Grace was set in the 1840s in Alabama. It's a multi-generational family saga. And I mentioned the family saga piece because again, Lou doesn't know where she's from. She knows pieces of it, but not really. It's a big switch for you as the writer. But what's next? I've already started writing it and I'm really trying to tell the next part of the saga, I guess, because I always saw Grace, The Perishing, and a third book. I always saw three books, but I didn't know how they were linked. Grace was a book that I wrote, and I wanted to honor everyone who came before. If you're talking about N.K. Jemison, if you're talking about Octavia Butler, if you're talking about Maya Angelou, Toni Morrison, even going back to Phyllis Wheatley, like I wanted to tell a story that honored the greats in a way, and not just Black women, but other writers came before me. So it was very much, you know, I have to do it a certain way. With The Perishing, I felt like I could do it for me. This is how I would tell it. If I didn't have to dress like everybody dresses, if I didn't have to speak the way everybody speaks, if I didn't have to do this, if I could just be Natasha, the weirdo moving from L.A. to Santa Clarita and just walk in the store like, hey, I like an ice cream, you know, and not be followed around the store. If I could be her and tell my story without regard to everyone else, that is the perishing. And I think that's the next book, too. <laughs> that's really exciting. Natasha Dion, thank you so much for joining us. Your new novel is The Perishing. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Miwa. Have a great one. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.